Back in 1952, uh, there was a woman named Florence Chadwick, and she stepped off the coast of Catalina Island into the water. Catalina is an island that is off the coast of California, and uh, if you're into Apple computers, you can probably picture that very jagged picture of that island that's on some of those backgrounds. That's it. She stepped right off of it into the water in an attempt to swim all the way to mainland California. Now, she had already been the first woman to swim the English Channel, and this was her next big feat that she was going to attempt. And it would not be easy. It was a cold day, and some of you know how cold the Pacific already is off the coast of California. So she was cold the whole way, and it was foggy, so she couldn't even really see the boats that were around her to jump in and save her if she were to start drowning. She was just having to trust that even those boats were there. She swam for 15 hours in those conditions before finally she looked to the boat and said, I can't do it anymore. Uh, I need you to pull me in. And her mom was in the boat. And her mom looked her in the eye and said, no, you're not. You're not quitting. You are this close to making it. And Florence treaded water there for a minute and said, I am exhausted. I need to quit. And so they pulled her back in the boat and the swim was a failure. Then after a moment of rest, she stood up in the boat And she saw for the first time that day the coast of California, the shore that she was swimming to. And that's when she learned that she really was close. She was only a half mile from the finish line. She could have made it, but she didn't. Sometime later, they asked her about it in an interview, and she said something really profound. She said, all I could see was fog. If I could have seen the shore... I think I would have made it. Sometimes hearing somebody say, you're going to make it, is not enough. Sometimes you need to actually see the shore in order to make it. And that is why I'm so thankful for this text we're going to look at today. Because the Lord does more for you today than to say to those of you who are struggling and hurting, you're going to make it, hang on. He does more than that. He actually gives you a picture of the shore that you are swimming toward. He gives you a picture of the finish line. He sets before you a vivid picture of the hope that awaits every Christian so that if you are struggling to tread water, you have enough in that picture to move you on and keep you swimming toward the shore. We're going to look at the ending of 1 Corinthians 15, where I pray that God will lay before his people a picture of the great hope we have waiting before us. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15 together. We're going to start in verse 51, which is partway through a paragraph, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Here are the words of the Apostle Paul. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound... And the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal 
puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The words of the Lord. Through these words, our God sets before his people our great hope. And I pray that it does the same thing for everybody in the room today. I pray that it gives us such a vivid picture of the hope that awaits us at the return of Jesus, that we have all we need between that and God's presence with us to make it through whatever storms and suffering you're going through right now, whatever trials and tribulations await you in the rest of your life, all the way to the finish line. In this broader chapter here, in chapter 15, uh, Paul is addressing some people in the Corinthian church who were trying to deny the Christian teaching of the resurrection of the dead. Uh, That is the timeless, now 2,000-year-old Christian teaching that those who have died will one day rise from the dead. Uh, There were some in Corinth in the church who were saying, no, that doesn't happen. It never has happened. It never will happen. Once you die, you're dead, and that is done. Paul is confronting those teachers saying, well, actually, that's really important for two reasons. Number one, you can't believe in true Christianity if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Right? So it's essential for Orthodox Christianity. And number two, if you don't believe that the dead will one day be raised, you're not even fully equipped to live the Christian life and make it through all the curves that are in the road. So he's saying that the resurrection of the dead, believing that one day people will rise from the dead, is essential for Christian belief. If you don't believe it, he's saying, then you don't believe in Orthodox Christianity. And if you won't believe in it and don't keep your eyes on it, you don't have everything you need to make it through all of the difficulties in the Christian life. It's essential for Christian living to look forward to the resurrection of the dead. And that's the point, that second point is what he's leaning into here. It's essential for the Christian life to look forward to the resurrection of the dead. And he does that in a few ways through today's text. If you look at it with me, I'll break down the different sections for you. First in verse 51 through verse 55, he just gives us a very vivid picture of the coming day when Jesus returns and all of the dead rise. Then in verse 56, he points out our two greatest problems, death and sin. The sting of death is sin, he says, the power of sin is the law. So those are our two greatest problems, death and sin. In verse 57, he reminds us that Jesus conquers those problems for us. And then finally in verse 58, he shows us how that ought to affect our lives every day. So four different sections that are going on. We'll take those in a different order this morning. We'll look first at the problem that's outlined in verse 56, then Jesus' solution to it, then we'll look at the resurrection of the dead, and then finally, how all of this should affect you every day. Let's look first at verse 56. He says there, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. 
And if you sit and think for a moment, you might start scratching your head and saying, wait, what does that actually mean? The, the sting of death is sin. What does that mean? The, the power of sin is the law. What, those are familiar words, but what, what does he mean? And what Paul is doing here is he is taking things that he has written chapters on elsewhere and condensing them down into small phrases that if you're not familiar with the chapters may be tough to understand. So this is something like if, say you have a story that you tell with your friends often. Maybe, maybe there's one time that you and your friends went to the beach and you drove on the beach and the car got stuck in the sand and some really funny person helped pull you out of the sand and you tell this story all the time. Oh, remember the time we went to the beach and the funny guy pulled us out of the sand and we got stuck in the sand. Sometimes you tell the story at length. Other times you'll say to the friend, hey, remember that time we went to the beach? And then you just all start laughing. And then there's the one newcomer there that's like, what are you talking about? That time, that's not enough information. That time you went to the beach. Tell me the whole story. Paul's essentially doing that here. He's taking something he's talked about at length elsewhere and condensing it down in a way that may be tough to understand if you're looking at it there for the first time. So what he's doing here with some of these phrases, let's look at the second one first. The power of sin is the law. He's essentially condensing Romans 1 through 3 into one little phrase. The power of sin is the law. Uh, let me unpack that for you. Uh, in Romans 1 through 3, what Paul goes through is the, the role of the law in our lives. Uh, sometimes when he talks about the law, he means Israel's law that was given by God to them. And other times, he means God's moral law that is eternal, the standard he holds every human to from the beginning to the end, everybody everywhere, like the real right and wrong that is out there, God's moral law. And that's what he means here when he says the law. He's talking about God's standard for human conduct. Uh, God has an expectation of everyone, morals that he expects us to live up to. And we have two ways of accessing God's law. It's revealed to us in two ways. One is imperfect, but available to everybody. And one, the other, is perfect. Uh, first, God's laws are, are written on our hearts. Uh, we, are, we are born with a conscience, with an inner sense that some things are right and some things are wrong. And that is why when there are two three-year-olds in the preschool class and one takes the toy from the other, the other one feels like they have been wronged and that wasn't right, right? We were born with an inward sense of right and wrong. God put that there. Uh, the trouble with God's laws written on our heart is that we are more than able to corrupt them, change them, convince ourselves of lies, decide that we want to do the wrong thing badly enough that maybe it's not so bad. And so that inner conscience can get distorted and can get twisted, and in fact does in everyone. So that's available to everyone. The fact that God's laws are written on our hearts, we know there is an inward sense of right and wrong within us. The other way God's laws are revealed are right here in the Holy Bible. Uh, and this is, unlike our hearts, never been corrupted, never been flawed. In fact, is fully perfect, and you can lean on it completely. Uh, you can look through the pages, put things together, and get a very strong sense of how God wants people to live. And that means that some people... <clears throat> are at a very great advantage because if you have access to God's ways, to God's laws, and God's laws give life when you follow them, well, then you've got a good guide. You've got a lamp to your feet, a light to your path, right? So following God's laws gives you life. And all of us have it written on our hearts, though it's a little corrupted. 
And many of us have access to it in the Holy Scriptures. The trouble is, and this is what Paul is getting at here, God's laws give you life if you follow them. Well, what if you don't? Does it do you good to know that stealing is wrong if you've stolen from your boss? No, it just condemns you. Does it do you good to know that lying is wrong if you lie to your spouse? No, it just condemns you. And so while those of us that have access to God's words have an advantage, actually it winds up condemning us because now we have access to the very word that shows us the standard and shows us that we have not met it. So some of us who only have God's words on our heart, never seen the Bible, walk around with this inward conscience nagging us and just saying, I know you did that. It was wrong, right? Then you move over here and it's like, I'm still here and that was still wrong, right? And just everywhere you go, that conscience is following you around, reminding you that you have broken God's laws. And those of us that are fortunate enough to have access to God's word, in a sense, have it even worse because we know better. We know how God wants us to live and we still don't do it. That is something of what Paul means when he says the power of sin is the law. If you know God's laws, that makes the sin in your life even more powerful. Your eyes are opened to just how much you have wronged God because you know the standard. That's the power of looking back and saying, not only did I do the wrong thing, but I knew better, right? God showed me the right thing, and I still did the wrong thing. That's something of what Paul means when he says the power of sin is the law. Now, before that, he says the sting of sin, sorry, the sting of death is sin, which is essentially Romans 5 and 6 condensed into one little phrase. Uh, You may recall some of you that have memorized parts of the book of Romans or have been taught it in Sunday school, some phrases like the wages of sin is death, right? Or that death entered the world through sin, through Adam's sin. The idea is that the reason we die, the reason that plants die, the reason that animals die, the reason that our friends and loved ones die and eventually we will die is because we have sinned against God. Our sin brought death into the world. This is something of what Paul means when he says the sting of death is sin. Death has its sting because we have sinned against God. We add those together and we have the two greatest problems that any person has ever faced. Our certain death that we know is coming and the fact that we have sinned against God. That means the ruler of the universe counts us as traitors, not because of his personality, but because of what we have done. So we walk around our whole lives with our consciences nagging at us, saying, yeah, we know we have done wrong, trying to fake that we're good people, 
Some of us even knowing God's standards here in the Bible and still violating them and trying to walk through like we're okay. We walk around with the cloud of death coming closer and closer with every day haunting us and just trying to look like things are okay. Now, you may have come in here with problems today, but those are the two biggest problems that we have, sin and death. Now, that life without any hope from Jesus Christ, I think you can probably see, is complete despair, right? No matter what I do, there's nothing I can do to save myself from death. I can prolong my life, but I can't stop myself from ever dying. And no matter what I do, I can't seem to do the right thing or make up for the fact that I've done wrong before. That, is, that will lead anyone to despair. And that is why it is so beautiful what Paul says in the next verse, verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now you can do nothing to overcome these great problems you came in with today, our sin and our deaths. But here it is. Jesus Christ has overcome them for us. Right? God gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. So when he says that God gives us victory through Jesus Christ, uh, what he means is that God has solved those two problems for us in Jesus. Jesus conquered the problem of sin and the problem of death when he came here and lived his life and died. So how does that work, you might ask, right? How does Jesus coming and doing whatever he did save me from sin and death? Well, here's how he does it. This is the good news of the gospel. I get to say this every week, and I love this. Jesus was God-made man. In the same way that you are a living soul in a human body, he was God in a human body and still is. He came to earth, was born of a virgin named Mary, and he lived a perfect life without sin even once. Uh, Then, though he never sinned, he, he died, died willingly. Three days after that, he rose from the dead And then several weeks after that, ascended up into heaven where he sits at God's right hand now, ruling the earth, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. That historical truth, the fact that Jesus really did that, that's the good news. That's the gospel. And so the question we should ask this morning is, how does him doing that give us victory over these problems of sin and of death? Uh, Here is how that works. First, by his death, the penalty for our sin is is paid for. So remember from earlier, the wage of sin is death, right? So the reason we die is because we have sinned. Now Jesus lives a perfect life and then dies. He does that to pay the penalty for our sins. I remember I was teaching a student Sunday school a little over a decade ago, and uh, this was one of my favorite moments of ever when I was teaching. There was a, a middle school boy, I think he was about 11 years old, his name was Michael, and we were talking about these same things, and he thought he had me stumped, like he was going for it. And he said, aha, I gotcha. I said, oh, okay, what do you got? He said, you said that the wage of sin is death. I said, that's right, yeah, okay. And you said that only sinners have to die, right? I said, yeah. Okay, and you said that Jesus died on the cross, didn't you? I said, yeah, that's right. And so he just drops the hammer. He said, so, ha, I got it. Why did Jesus die if he never sinned, huh? 
And uh, oh, I just looked at him and said, because you were supposed to die, Michael. And you know when you're teaching and the switch just flips sometimes, like their eyes light up and they just get it? That's what happened. He went, oh. And then, oh, it's one of my favorite things I've ever heard someone this age say. He said, is that why we sing Jesus paid it all? And I said, yeah, that's why. And sometime later, that child said, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. He, he repented, he believed the gospel, he trusted in Jesus. Why did Jesus die like that on the cross? He paid the penalty for our sin. He died in our place. We are the ones who were supposed to be there on that cross. That's how he overcomes sin for us, by dying in our place and paying for it. There's also an inverse side of this, right? He lived a perfect life before God. He never broke God's laws once. And if you can go through a whole life and do all kinds of acts of righteousness like he did and never sin, you got a pretty good reward stored up in heaven, don't you? Like you got some good status before God if you can do that. Sure enough, he did. And what he does for us is he gives to us the credit for his righteousness. So you could think of this as a, a swap our sin taken from us and given to him, and he pays for it. The credit for his righteousness given to us. So that when God looks to us, he says, there is my perfect son. This is someone who I love, with whom I am well pleased. Here is one who never broke my laws and has credit for all of the good things that Jesus Christ did, which means we can walk into heaven with eternal reward that Jesus earned for us. So both directions here. He takes our sin. He gives to us the credit for his righteousness. Uh, As it's said in another book in the Bible, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. After that, he rose from the dead. And his resurrection secures for us a guarantee that one day we will rise from the dead as well. So that means not only is our problem of sin taken care of, not only has he conquered that, but in his resurrection from the dead, he validates that when this one promises he will come back and he will raise us from the dead, he means business, right? This is a guy who rose from the dead himself. He can do that. He is powerful to do that. So he has not just conquered sin. He has conquered death for us as well. There are the two greatest problems you face. Conquered. Sin and death. Now, to receive that, if that's a blessing you want, you're like, I want that, what the Bible says to do is repent and believe the gospel. Uh, To repent is just to turn from everything you love and seek after and believe and, and do to Jesus Christ, to love him above all, to seek after him above all, to believe what he says is true, to do what he says, to turn from what you were to him. That's to repent. And to believe the gospel is to just to believe that that whole historic story I told you is true. Jesus really did all of those things. And to trust yourself to him for that salvation. To say, I am saved from my sin because of what he did. Because he really died and he really rose. That's what it means to repent and believe the gospel. 
And I call all of you, place your faith there. Turn from sin. Believe in Jesus Christ. And if you do wish to do that, the next step to follow him is to be baptized in his name. Talk to someone near you or to me or to Paul or someone about what it means to be baptized. There is the good news of the gospel and the way that Jesus solves these problems for us. Now, part of it there is that he conquers death for us, right? But here's the problem. If we all live long enough before Jesus comes back, we'll all still die, right? And we still go to funerals of loved ones. So death is still here. What's going on? If it's conquered, why are people still dying? And that hope that we look forward to of death fully being destroyed, that's what Paul paints a picture of in verse 51. Let's read 51 to 55 again. And then I'll outline the picture that he's given for you. 51 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. For in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body shall put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So, so he's giving us there the shore that we're swimming towards, right? What's finally going to happen when Jesus returns? And he's giving us really vivid pictures so that we can keep it in our minds and continue to imagine it so that we can be encouraged along the way. So the picture, which is here and also in 1 Thessalonians 4 and in a few other places, uh, works like this. The last thing we saw Jesus do here on earth was rise up into heaven. And when he did, there was a promise made that we will see him come back in the same way. So he rose up, we're going to see him come down from the clouds. So one day, we will hear the sound of a trumpet, as if to introduce the coming of a king into town, a trumpet blare. And we will hear the voice of an angel introduce that he is coming. And then we will see Jesus himself descending in all of his glory from the clouds. If you are alive that day, no matter where you are, you will see it. And you will hear it, and you will know that he has come. So we get the sound of a trumpet blasting and an angel calling out as he comes. And then what it says is that in a moment, all of us who trust in Jesus Christ, all of us who have repented and believed the gospel, will very instantly receive new bodies at the sound of that trumpet. It says in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, will all be changed. It says that we won't all sleep, but we will all be changed. This simply means that some Christians will be dead at that time and some Christians will still be alive. And the picture that First Thessalonians paints is that those that are dead will rise first, meet Jesus in the air, and then the rest of us here on the earth will meet him there. The picture we've got here is that as that trumpet blows, both the dead and the living in Christ are instantaneously given new bodies. Revelation says the sea will give up its dead on that day. 
Our graves will open and we will rise up from the dead to meet Jesus Christ in new immortal bodies. The body you dwell in now is described in verse 54 as perishable and mortal. Now those are kind of big words, but if you've been around very long, you'd know what they mean and you've experienced them, right? Some of us are more in touch with how perishable our bodies are than others, right? Some of you have lamented to me that the busiest thing you do is go from this doctor to that doctor to that doctor to that doctor, right? Because our bodies are perishing. And those of you who are younger need to know that a day will come when you will not wake up stronger than you were the day before, but you will wake up weaker than you were the day before. And some of you who are younger need to know that a day will come when you will exercise to try to maintain strength rather than to try to get stronger. And a day may even come when you will exercise to try to slow down the rate that you are losing strength rather than to get stronger. The bodies we dwell in now are mortal and they are perishable. Some of us even today have worn a mask on our face that reminds us our bodies today are perishable. But the body you will receive on that day is described as imperishable and immortal. Amen. That means that your body that day will have a back, but that back will never ache. Amen. You may have kidneys in that day, probably will have kidneys in that day. We will never have kidney stones in that day, right? Imperishable body. If there are viruses, bacteria, fungus, things like that in the coming new creation, we will breathe them in and suffer no consequences because whatever our bodies will be made of, they will be impervious to any disease. Who knows, we may breathe in a virus on that day and it give us some benefit to our body and make it stronger. But the body will be imperishable on that day. If you're still made of cells in that day, your cells will not fade away and die out and will not be pervious to disease. Bodies that are immortal, bodies that are imperishable. Now that's good news. And that's the hope that we have to look forward to. That, that's the shore that if Florence Chadwick would have been able to see, she would have been able to make it. And some of you need to see it and need to hear it. And that's what the Lord's giving you this morning, that picture of what you get on the last day when Jesus comes back. Now, before we go into how that ought to affect our lives every day, every day should be different if you can keep your eyes on that hope. Before we get to that, I do, we do need to hit pause and talk about one way that this text is misused sometimes in the church so that we can just guard ourselves against against it. Um, sometimes, uh, well, when you're at a funeral, uh, there are two things typically that are happening at the same time. On one hand, you are celebrating the life and the legacy of somebody, right? And, and whoever is speaking and preaching and whatever, they are seeking out every good thing and every great story about that person so we can remember and celebrate their legacy. And then the other thing we're doing, which feels very different, but the two are just mixed together in this mysterious way, the other thing we're doing is we're we're grieving together and we're mourning because that person has died. And so there's this strange mix of celebration and mourning at the same time that is designed to comfort those of us who are grieving. But sometimes you'll hear people 
emphasize the celebration and minimize the mourning. Uh, you might hear people say things like, oh, don't, don't cry for me when I go, right? Don't be sad when I go. I'll be heaven, in heaven with Jesus. It'll be good news, right? No one cry. Just celebrate my life and everybody have a good time at my funeral, right? And what can happen is sometimes we can even quote this verse to those ends, right? Oh, death, where is your sting, right? Why are we crying at funerals? Where is the sting of death, right? Why, why are we crying at funerals? Where is the victory of death? It has lost its sting, we might be tempted to say. Some of us maybe even do say. But when we word it like that, when we use it in that way, we're running over the way that Paul introduces these words. We Back up in 51, he says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, that is when we get our new bodies, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? That means the sting of death is still here. The scripture says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So as we talk about the sting of death being removed, we're not talking about something that's here yet. Some of you have felt that sting, and you know that it is real. It is still here. We can't pretend like it's gone yet, because it's not gone. No. What we must do is look forward to the day when the sting is gone. If you were to get a, a bee sting in your arm, it would not help to pretend like the bee sting was not there. It would still hurt just as bad. What you would do is nurse the wound in hopes that the sting will go away. And that is the hope that Jesus gives to you here. As you nurse the wound, you know the sting will go away. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, then will come to pass what is written, death, where is your sting? Death. Where is your victory? The last enemy to be destroyed is death. We do a, a disservice to grieving people when we encourage them not to grieve because the sting of death is already gone. Now, the sting is real. But the hope we have for you is that it is going away one day. Now, if we can keep our eyes on that finish line, if we've got our ears tuned to the cry of the trumpet that will come that day. And if we can imagine in our hearts and store in our hearts just how wonderful it must be in the twinkling of an eye to have our bodies changed instantly, that will change your life every day. That will give you what you need to make it through whatever it is you're going through today, whatever it is you're going to go through tomorrow and get to the finish line. And that's what Paul goes to in the last verse in this chapter. So we'll land there and look at two ways this would affect our lives every day. First, he says in verse 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, right? So because of everything I've talked about so far, because Jesus is coming back, the dead will rise, our bodies will be changed. Because of all of that, first, be steadfast and immovable, which just simply means to cling to Jesus and don't let go. And second, to always be abounding in good work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That just means to keep doing good things under the Lord's direction. So, 
So the two ways this ought to change your life every day is first, it ought to empower you to hang on to Jesus and not let go. In other words, to not leave the faith. And secondly, it ought to inspire you to continue the good works that you are doing and work even more and more, even as we suffer and even as we are tired. Uh, Let's look at the first one first. To be steadfast and to be immovable. So this means then, as we go through all kinds of trials, all kinds of difficulties, and we could just, some of you I know what they are, and we could go through them, and some of you I don't know what they are. As we go through them, we don't let them knock us off course from the finish line. It means that we hang on to Jesus and we don't let go. And that means something right now is the world is in a season where many things have come up to tempt us to fall away from the faith. And yet the very things that discourage us and keep us down are actually reasons that we should cling on to Jesus. What is your only hope of ever dwelling in a body that is impervious to viruses? Jesus, clinging to Jesus and receiving from him a new body. What is your only hope of ever living under a government that is fully just? Jesus, right? This is one of the very things that are tempting us away are actually the the reasons that we need to hang on to him. That's the first one, to hang on. And then second, to continue abounding in good work, always abounding in good work, the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Uh, It can be tempting, those of you who are trying to do things for Jesus, uh, it can be tempting to just back up a lot of times and say, what is the point? Like, is there there any point to all of this? Is this all for nothing? Uh, And if we were to follow the logic of the world here, what's the point of teaching Sunday school if you're going to die and your students are going to die and that's the end of it? There's no point. The labor's in vain if death is the end. What is the point of pulling out the dying trees that we pulled out from the entrance here and putting in new trees in their place that we're going to? What's the point of that if we're all going to die and the trees are all going to die and that's the end of it? There's no point. It's all in vain. But the resurrection of the dead changes all of that. It gives meaning to all of our work because the Lord will come back with reward in his hand. I was talking to one of our members recently who is, uh, he's walking around in his neighborhood, uh, meeting neighbors who are walking on the streets, sometimes knocking on doors, but rarely has to because people are outside this time of year. And he's sharing the gospel with people. Uh, and he's using Tony's three questions that we learned over the summer. And he was telling me the story of talking to a man who, I think the man was Catholic. I'm not sure about that part. Uh, and he's, uh, you know, using the questions that we were all taught. He says to the man, hey, do you mind if I ask you a question? That's the first question, right? And the guy says, yeah, sure. He says, uh, question two, how do you believe a person gets into heaven? And the man said exactly what Tony said most people say, good works, right? And so he said to the man the third question, well, do you mind if I share with you, or would it be okay if I shared with you uh, what the Bible says? And the man said, no. And that was the end of that conversation. That'll take the wind out of your sails, right? All that build up, all that, nope, doesn't want to hear it. Sometimes it just feels like that work is in vain and for nothing. So many people who work either teaching or mothers raising their kids at home 
can just feel like it's all for nothing. Like I taught them the same thing eight times and they still aren't doing it the way that I taught them to do. Is, there, is all of this for nothing, right? The resurrection of the dead changes all of that. If Jesus says, I am coming back, I will raise your body from the dead, I will give you a new body, and I come with reward in my hand for everything you have done for me. Well, now everything we do for Jesus is not in vain. Every cup of coffee we serve in that lobby, every person we serve outside of these doors, everything we do for him has meaning because he will come back and he will raise us from the dead. So what do we do every day differently because of the resurrection of the dead? We hold on to Jesus and we keep working even when we're tired, even when we feel like all of this has no point, because it does have a point, we have hope. Florence said if she had just seen the shore, she could have made it all the way. Christians, you've got just a glimpse this morning of the shore. May it stay in your heart. May may you cling on to it. May you treasure it. And when you feel like you are drowning in the fog, may it come back to you and inspire you to press on and swim all the way home. Let's pray.